Hey, everybody. It is Matt Bechtel with Book Brilliant, and I've got another episode today. Um, but before I begin on any of that, I just want to pause for a moment and say that we're going to release a couple episodes uh, dedicated um, to September 11th of 2001. <clears throat> the idea of this is I want to interview people from a couple different perspectives. Um, if you check out episode number two, um, I do talk to firefighter Jerry Sanford about that. Um, his book, It Started With a Helmet, is all about um, his experience there. Um, so I do highly recommend people go back and listen to that episode. Um, but 9-11, it was impactful for everybody uh, who lives in America, and it truly did change the world. Um, I was in second grade when it happened. And every year, I try to read a book and, and do some sort of studying about that. And that's kind of what led me to seek out um, some guests specifically for this. Um, in the future, I am willing and uh, definitely would love to talk to anyone else who has a perspective on this. If there's anybody listening who uh, may have been there, uh, maybe in a tower, maybe they're a first responder, anything. Um, after September 11th passes this year, uh, this is something that I would still be interested in talking to people about. Uh, but today... I've got a, I've got a great guest for this. His name is Vic Ferrari. Uh, he's the author of uh, a few books, which I'll get into here in a second. But Vic um, is a retired police officer from New York City who was working uh, the day of September 11, 2001, and uh, he was there. And so I really appreciate him coming on and uh, talking about it specifically. If you listen to any of uh, Vic's other interviews or if you check out his books, You'll notice that Vic is, uh, he's a funny guy and most of his stuff is a little bit more lighthearted, uh, maybe with some gallows humor in there. Um, if you've ever talked to a cop before that, that's nothing unique. Um, and you can kind of see that in, in his books, right? So his very first book ever was, uh, Dickheads and Dubockery. Uh, he also is the, the author of NYPD Law and Disorder, uh, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Flying Circus, and NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Um, I ordered all these books because my plan is to read them all and then uh, have Vic back on. Uh, I thought that we hit it off uh, right away, um, and he just seemed like the kind of guy that I could talk to for a long time. And I'm sure he noticed that and was probably getting annoyed <laughs> uh, before he hopped off. So, Vic, again, thank you for coming on. Um, I think that, uh, he has some really good perspectives here and I'm excited for everybody to listen to it. Um, Vic is on social media. He's on Facebook. I don't know if he's doing a whole lot with it. Uh, so I think the number one way to find out more about Vic is to check out his books on Amazon, but let's get started with the interview. All right. Well, Vic, thank you for joining me today. I, I really appreciate it. I, I know that, um, a lot of your, a lot of your, your books and, and your interviews are, are kind of funny and you've got a lot of funny stories today might be a little bit more somber, not that it, it has to be, but, um, I, I really wanted to focus on, uh, you know, September 11th, 2001, uh, you are on the force during that time. And I wanted to get the perspective of a police officer. So thank you for joining me today. All right. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. So do you have any memories when you were younger of being at the Twin Towers? Yeah, it's so funny you should bring that up. Um, my, my father had, had a brother, he's my uncle, and uh, he wasn't around very much. He worked for the government. He was kind of in and out of our lives. We'd see him every now and then. And I was a little boy. I was maybe five or six. And um, my father one Sunday morning said, hey, um, your uncle's going to come by and, and take you out for the day. So I was excited, and my brother and I got into his car. We drove all the way down to the west side of Manhattan, and he takes us to the World Trade Center on a Sunday. Now, I had already been there on a school trip, but I didn't say anything. And we go up to the top, and we go back down, and then he wow. buys us lunch. And basically, he was doing his uncle thing for every three years. He just kind of – he wasn't kid-friendly, but he was trying. So he drops me and my brother off, and my father goes, did you thank your uncle? And I'm thinking to myself, for an elevator ride? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah, dad, I, I thanked him. I, I mean, I was a little boy. But yeah, school trips. Um, the weird thing about the World Trade Center is I was dating someone at the time that worked at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Uh -huh. And um, a couple of weeks, probably about two or three weeks before 9-11, we met a girlfriend of hers in the lower concourse of the Trade Center. So I was in there about a week before. 
And the day before 9-11, she was actually in law school in Philly. So I was taking the Amtrak back. And it was weird because on Amtrak, just before you hit the tunnel to go under the Hudson, there was a great shot of the Manhattan skyline. And I remember looking at, at the Trade Center, just, you know, not giving it a second thought. Um, what, what's funny is people don't realize that 9-11 happened on a Tuesday. Yeah. And it was an election day. And I was supposed to work election detail that day. And what happened, wound up happening was I had arrested a guy that was going to give us a dirty DMV employee that was pumping out phony driver's license. I think it was out of the Harlem office. So he said he did, or he, he said he had a lot of information. So he was in jail. And uh, on 9-11, I was supposed to go down to the Manhattan DA's office with my sergeant, get him out. And it's called queen for a day. So you pull him out with the district attorney and basically anything short of murder, you can't use against him. So you're kind of weighing what he can give you to get him out as a, uh, as a confidential informant. Yeah. And uh, Queen for a Day never happened because I, we were supposed to be down at the Manhattan DA's office at nine. So I came in at seven. We we're going to leave at eight and get there by nine. My sergeant was running late. So what wound up happening was I'm like, hey, my sergeant's name was John. I'm like, John, come on, let's go. Let's go. We're, we're going to be late. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, one of the cops, our office was on the second floor of a housing police building. I was a detective in the auto crime division. And uh, one of the cops ran upstairs and said, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So immediately put on the news and you just saw the flames. You didn't really see anything else. So we thought like somebody with a Cessna or something, a private pilot had a heart attack or something. or Didn't think terrorism at first, just, you know, because nobody knew. And while we're watching it, here comes the second plane and we're like, holy shit, this is bad. So knowing, you know, by that point in my career, I had 15, 14 or 15 years in with the New York City Police Department. So I knew everybody got into uniform because, you know, we're going down there at some point during the day. So we all, you know, you couldn't call anybody really by cell phone because the cell phones were out. Yeah. So everything was landline and that was sketchy. So um, probably by about one o'clock, they loaded us into cars and we all drove down the west side of Manhattan. We parked probably about 10, 15 blocks away, as close as you could could with the debris flying around. And then they just um, broke us up into teams and marched us in there. What uh, what were you thinking? Were you like worried that like, you know, bombs are going to start dropping next or what's the what was the atmosphere like? Uh, You know, were you afraid of what's next or did you just assume that the worst had already happened? Um, you know, when you're a kid and you don't know what to expect, like the first time you went to Disney World, I know I'm picking out something because usually bad things don't happen to children. But like the first time you go to Disney World or your parents tell you they're going to take you to see something that you just you can't wrap your mind around it. It's like you just it's like people say they see a UFO. Like, how does that even work? Yeah. Um, I didn't know what to expect. But like by that time in my career, I had seen a lot of bad things. And, you know, arrested a lot of bad people. So I knew what to expect the worst of the worst. But uh, I was nervous. We were all nervous. We didn't. Um, I, do, I do remember they, that they said that they were grounding all flights, like any flight that was in the air. They were trying to get down and landed at the closest airport just to get a handle on this because they didn't want any other planes up there, you know, crashing into things. Yeah. So um, I really didn't know. Why. I was nervous. I'm not going to say that I wasn't. It's curious. Um, you know, there, there were guys, some guys were more nervous than others. I, I, I put myself right in the center. I, you know, I mean, I was going, I just didn't know what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. So did you, as an adult, how often, so I want to ask you how often you had to go there for police work, but outside of police work to, to skip that question for a second, would you ever go in there as an adult for any other reason? I think it was like mostly law firms and banks. And so I know like, when you live in a city that has a tourist attraction, it's, you know, rarely the people that live there are the ones who are visiting it. Um, how often would you go in there, like, as an adult, if ever, outside of police? I think I've probably been in that building maybe four times in, I guess I was about 35 years old when, when, it, when that happened. So probably four or five times at most. School trip with my uncle. Um, I was in the lower complex with my girlfriend. We were walking a friend to a train, I think. And maybe one other time, it, it's you live in New York. You, 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 there's a, people always ask, "Oh, did you see this?" I, I mean, I think I went to the Statue of Liberty as an infant. I've never, I mean, I've seen it a million times, but I never went. And I've lived in the Bronx for forty something years, 
Yeah. So it's sad, but um, it just, it's there, but you don't really take advantage of it. Yeah. Do you remember, did it sway like crazy up towards the top? Do you remember it all? <sighs> yeah. I, I, well, I'm going to get that confused with the Empire State Building, but yeah, there was some of that. I'm not a big height guy. Like I don't like heights. Yeah, neither do I. Yeah, I mean, a couple of times I was supposed to go with a helicopter and take photos of a warehouse in Brooklyn where they were shipping stolen cars out of the country. My lieutenant's like, you have to go. And I'm like, put somebody else in that thing. I'm not going to go some water from you. I said, I don't care. Suspend me. He says, I'm not getting in a helicopter. I can't do it. Yeah, I went to the Sears Tower in Chicago. I've never been to New York, actually, but I've been to the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. And um, that one free. I mean, I was like, I never want to go up this high again. I was I was like 16 years old. And uh, I just, I remember it, it freaked me out how much it swayed. Uh, it just blew my mind. I've never been that high before. I live in Nebraska, right? So um, being in a city where the buildings are so tall that the streets uh, are like, sh like sh you know, shadowy, uh, darker, I, that just blew my mind. I'd never encountered that before. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of curious about that because I think the Twin Towers was mostly like law firms and banks, correct? Yeah, it was yeah financial, yeah bond trading, uh, commodities. Do you remember the thunderstorm that happened in New York the night before on September tenth? Yeah, when I, I yeah I remember it was raining. I remember with that train ride. Yeah, coming through coming through Jersey just before I remember. Yeah, there was there was thunderstorms. Yeah, I was I was kind of reading a little bit uh, about because there was an artist that took photos of that thunderstorm and it was the night the night uh, before um kind oh, of wow. picture so i can send that to you too and i'll link it in the show notes cool. um for people to check out so um what about as a police officer did you have to did you was there ever problems in the trade centers that you guys I, I know that there were terrorist attacks prior to september 11th but did you ever have did it did it attract any kind of crime was there any i don't know bank robberies or any other reason for you guys to be down there or you to be down there specifically well, I, I mean, I was in the detective. I was in organized crime from yeah. my last 10 years. And before that, I was in various units up in the Bronx. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't think that the police would get called there a lot. I'm sure it happened. I'm sure for cardiacs. I'm sure for medical reasons. Yeah. Um, you had a lot of stores there. So I'm sure retail theft from time to time, someone would get locked up for trying to boost something out of a store. Um, yeah, I mean, people I'm sure people got arrested in there. It's a good question. Uh, I, I don't really have an answer. I never really did any type of enforcement there. Yeah, no problem. I was, I was just kind of curious. So, so the day of uh, 9-11, so you were actually supposed to be in like a courthouse or whatever close by. And, and you said before, had your friend, uh, your coworker not, not been running behind, you would have been down there and you said, you know, I could have potentially died because I first thing we would have done is, is run to ground zero and and stuff um so yeah could you kind of run us through that that day a, a little bit more um you've got kind of a fascinating story about uh all of the women's shoes that were left behind yeah could you go into detail about kind of both of those things the before and the after i guess sure so we're up in the bronx and we're, we're on standby and a call comes in and it says yeah. all right um going down you know my the highest ranking guy in my office was our lieutenant so our lieutenant led a caravan of four or five cars with two or three guys per car. We all drove down to the West side. We got out uh, our main office. We were like, I worked out of a substation. Uh, our main office was based in Queens and our deputy inspector was there and, you know, more supervisors. So they marched us in and uh, we were walking around. They handed out uh, like these home Depot paper filters. I don't yeah. know how well they worked, but I, I the second they had one available. I threw it on because you could see the air. <laughs> And um, it looked like a ticker tape parade. It just, it was just paper and stuff, plastic bags. And just, it just was an endless rain on you. It, it was like, yeah. it's like, um, it was like a nuclear, like you see like a nuclear Holocaust or, or you worked in a bakery and someone blew up flour. It just, it was all over you. I mean, you just, you were walking through this, this stuff. And yeah. the weirdest indiscriminate stuff was just laying on the sidewalk. It was weird. Like just, you know, things got thrown all over the place. And uh, I think it was Broadway. We hit Broadway and then we started heading south. And um, 
there wasn't a soul around on the ground and the whole street cars, parking meters, um, you know, it's bad when those food truck guys left their food trucks behind. Like those guys, <laughs> they'll stand there and sell the last hot dog, no matter how bad it is. And they took off and left their food trucks and everything's covered in white. But you see shoes, hundreds and thousands of pairs of women's shoes, because when they were trying to get the hell out of there, they couldn't run in their heels. They just tossed their heels and, and ran barefoot. And while we were actually driving down there, you could see people running across the bridges. It was the wildest thing because um, first we came down, we came down the FDR for a bit and then we got stuck. And then I think we cut across 57th Street to the west side and came down. But I remember just seeing like tons of barefooted women running around and down at Ground Zero, there was thousands of shoes. I mean, thousands. So I don't know if I ever told this part, but um, we went into a building. There was an office building a couple of blocks away from the trade center. And um, there was there was the maintenance workers were the only ones behind. They stayed behind. And, uh, you know, we were just, you know, we we're just talking to them and making small talk. And um, one of the guys was from Afghanistan. It was the craziest thing. And he starts going into. I mean, I had heard on the news about the Taliban. I knew about Al Qaeda. Yeah. But I, but I, I didn't really know much about the Taliban other than they were always blowing up statues and they weren't happy, you know, and. He went into chapter and verse about how they took over his country. And I mean, it was like it was like a master class in terrorism and, and just what's going on in that region from a guy that was like a porter in a building. I mean, educated guy. I yeah. don't know what he did in Afghanistan, but um, he, he basically spelled out chapter and verse what was going on in his country. Jeez. So we got closer. So we took a break in there and then we got closer to the. We got closer. We're actually we got to ground zero and the facade, the facade of the trade center came straight down and embedded itself in the debris. And I didn't know what that was. It looked like the biggest piece of lattice I had ever seen for like a yard. And someone was, no, yeah. no, that's the facade. And I said, holy shit. And then by then there were more people down there. There were people from the military. There was some guy in a spacesuit with a frigging Geiger counter or some kind of device. I have no idea what it was. He was wandering around. It yeah. was making all sorts of noise. I guess they were checking for radiation. Um, there was a lot going on down there. Um, I was down there from probably one o'clock in the afternoon and I didn't go home. They pulled us out of there about five, six in the morning. They made us go to the east side of Manhattan and they had cops with like buckets of water that you would stand in and then they would kind of hose you off, like try to get some of that stuff off of you, like the asbestos and everything else that was on you. They were kind of like trying to decontaminate the best they could, but wasn't doing anything. The second I got home, I took all my stuff off and I threw it in the washing machine. Yeah. Um, it, it was wild. I mean, just, like I said, it was it was the weird like if you watch an episode of Hoarders, like where they're going through someone's garage and there's all sorts of crap just laying around. There was like everything yeah. from like children's toys, like that someone might have had on their desk to a laptop or like a PC that was just sitting there like in perfect condition to something that was just uh, photos. Just yeah. It was the wildest shit just kind of like churned together. Yeah, I can I well, I can't even imagine, but yeah, I'm sure there was all kinds of debris. It's funny, you know, I don't even want to go into detail right now about everything going on in Afghanistan because I'm trying to get somebody from the military or some, somebody on who can really give me a better analysis who's, right. who's on the right. ground. But, you know, I'll say this. I read the book. Uh, there's a book about Osama bin Laden's capture and, and shooting called Manhunt, I think is what it's called. And it's like for how people say how short-sighted the U.S. military was with it, it's like, you know who was really short-sighted was Osama bin Laden thinking that he was going to take down the two biggest towers in the world in America and uh, that we weren't going to do anything about it. It's like that's that was some real short-sightedness right there. When I study, you know, 9-11, and I, I try to do it every year, I, I try to read some new books about it, and it, I just get so pissed because it's like this was so, it was such a, pointless thing for them for you know for them to attack it for for what you know i mean uh there's there's um i've read speculation that that was something that bin laden regretted doing because he didn't think we were gonna you know respond the way that we did but yeah you, you got know, you, you um, got crazy this. that 
you, you got to ask yourself, as dedicated as he was, right? I mean, he was safe in that cave. No one was really looking for him. I mean, he had already hit the coal, right? He had already bombed the coal. I think he was involved in Tanzania and the other one. Um, Mogadishu, he was. Mogadishu. Yeah, right. And we said, like, if we could have gotten our hands on him, we would have. But we really weren't trying for him. Like, he was really, like, it's like a kid that just keeps fucking with you. And it's like, all right. Yeah. So I, I don't think, you know, I, I think he thought that, and I, I, you know, I'm not a terrorism expert. I, I think he thought Pakistan was going to welcome him with open arms. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they let him stay there, but I don't think it was the life he thought he was going to get out of it. And yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think he underestimated us. And I, and I think it definitely changed his life. It fucked up his life that he was looking over his shoulder. Like he couldn't believe 10 years later, they're still coming for me. And you yeah. know, my top guys are getting picked off and droned and captured and everything else. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, it's kind of mind blowing too, that my understanding is what he thought because of black Hawk down, he really felt like, Oh, they didn't really do any, they didn't do anything to respond to black Hawk down. So they won't do anything in response to this. And it's like, that's quite the leap of logic that, you know, taking down two black Hawk helicopters in Mogadishu you know, is going to elicit the same response as taking down two towers in New York city. You know, it's like, those are not the same thing, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that, that, if anybody was short sighted, I think that, 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 that falls on him. Now, did you know anybody, um, that day, either on the police force or other people, did you know anybody that day that had passed? Yeah, I, I actually did. Um, Two police officers that died. I, I didn't know them well. One was from my neighborhood. I used to see him around. I didn't really know him. Another guy, Tommy Langone, worked in the, uh, the 45th precinct when I was a kid. I always liked him. He was a nice guy. Uh, a guy I went to high school with, I later found out, died. And uh, my friend's mother, another kid I went to high school with, his mom worked in the Trade Center. I didn't know a lot of people, but um, off the top of my head, yeah, there were four that lost their lives in there. And did you know, I don't know, I mean, geez, New York City's so big. Like, in my town, the, the cops and firefighters are, they know each other. I, you know, maybe some of them are friends, but they at least all know each other, I think. Um, did you know any of those firefighters then that had passed or, or anybody that was there fighting it as a firefighter? No, I, I didn't know. Actually, I didn't know any of the firemen that, that perished in 9-11. I yeah. mean, New York is so big. I mean, the New York City Police Department's got at any point between 30 and 40,000 members. I don't know what the FDNY has. I, 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 I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but I mean, five boroughs, they're all over. I think there's probably more firehouses than police stations. So there's a lot, I mean, you know? Yeah. Well, I, my, uh, in my town, there's my, I live in a town outside of Omaha. That's got about 27,000 people. Right. So, uh, you're, you're the police department of New York is, uh, bigger than my town. And like you've said before, it's bigger than most countries' armies are. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, you know, I, I figured that, you know, maybe you knew some people, maybe you did it. Um, so after that, I wanted to ask you, how, how long did it take before the assholes started coming in and impersonating cops and firefighters? Was that immediate? Was that a week after? How soon was it that people Fast. It, it, fast? it happened. Fa- yeah, there were people in there probably within the first couple of days because it was such madness and they tried to get a containment around it. Well, I remember the second day, like maybe nine, maybe the 12th or the 13th. I, I, I would think it would be impossible to be the 12th, but probably the 13th. I remember less than a couple of blocks from the trade center, there was a Winnebago there. A bunch of Chicago cops had jumped into a Winnebago, drove across the country and set up camp several to help. And it yeah. was the funniest thing in the world. They had written, fuck you, Bin Laden. <laughs> in the, <laughs> you saw that all over the place. Like the cars that were like just covered in dust. You'd see, you know, fuck you, Bin Laden and all sorts of shit. Um, yeah. You saw a lot of cops down there from different police departments. I remember there was a bunch of um, people from canine, uh, just tons of people with canine rescue dogs from there was a couple of girls there from uh, Missouri. But yeah, there was the scam artists started going in there and, and trying to steal shit because FEMA had started dropping off supplies and volunteers were dropping off supplies. And then you had famous people that were coming down there that just wanted to say thank you. Like I, re- I met Robert De Niro down there. I met Billy Baldwin down there. I met, um, 
Uh, oh, De Niro was like the Messiah. De Niro showed up like a week or two later, maybe maybe more. And we were all just kind of sitting around taking a break. And it was like the Messiah was walking through. <laughs> Everybody just starts jumping up. Like, what the fuck is this? And then he's coming. He's coming. I'm like, who the fuck is coming? They go, De Niro. I go, get out of here. And I mean, you know, most cops are city kids who grew up in New York watching mob movies. And he just, you know, he's got that face with the mole and he's just kind of making that face and he's shaking hands. And my sergeant goes, here's your chance. He just kind of shoved me in front of my oh, Mr. Nero, I think you're a great actor. Thank you. Thank you. And he just kept going. Um, Freeman McNeil from the Jets was there. He was a former running back. There was a lot of famous people down there that just wanted to say thank you and, you know, entertain or just, you know, be down there, be a part of it. How close did you get to, to Bush? Did you get close to Bush at all when he was there? No, I did not. You know who I actually saw? This is a funny story. It's not funny, but it is funny. Who was the name of that congressman that they suspected in the death of his girlfriend? The girl's name was Shonda Levy. Um, well, first of all, any of the Kennedys? No. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of uh, what did you say her name was? The girl's name was Chandra Levy. She she was she was dating a married sitting congressman or senator. I think his name was uh, Gary. I'm pulling it up. Uh, let's see. She was. I'm looking it up right now. Gary Condit. That that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's who it is. Yeah. What state was he from? Ooh, let me look. Sorry, I apologize. No, giving no, you're giving you homework. I know. I love it. Um, let's see. American former politician, California. Okay. So we're down. This is about a week or two after. And this girl had gone missing. And, you know, they didn't, you know, all they knew was he was married. She yeah. was having an affair with him. And now she's missing. So, I mean, obviously he's a suspect. It, it turned out he didn't do it. He had nothing to do with it. Okay. But it was in the newspaper. It was all, I mean, you couldn't put on the news and, you know, I mean, I want to say this poor guy I mean, he's having an affair but at the same time he had nothing to do with this woman's disappearance or death yeah um there's a bunch of people from congress down there and there there's like a contingency like a bunch of vips and they're walking by and this guy that i work with who's not that smart like points at him he's less than five feet away he goes hey that's the fucking guy that suspected <laughs> and i like we were just so tired and delirious like we were working like 14 15 hour days and this guy is walking by with, you know, a bunch of congressmen and senators surveying the area, trying to get funds down there. And this guy that I work with goes, hey, isn't that the fucking guy that's suspected that? But like pointing at him like a kid, you know, like yeah. a kid would like you, your parent would want to smack the kid. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And get, he looked at us. He looked at us, put his head down and just kept going. Damn. Yeah, no, no kidding. There was uh, when you're talking about what people were drawing. I saw a photo uh, not too long ago that said uh, it said "fuck peace, give war a try." Somebody <laughs> give war a chance. Somebody had written that in the windows because I mean, I was I was really young when when 9/11 happened, but I do remember like everybody wanted to go kick some ass. Everybody wanted to go overseas and fight anybody who had anything to do with that. Um, you know, it wasn't like a, a kumbaya moment right away. No. It's actually a unifying uh, moment. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> it was very unifying at first. And I think that the approval ratings when we first started deploying was like really high. It wasn't until we started like messing around in Iraq, I think, is when people were kind of starting to question things. But yeah, I think at first everybody was like, let's go. Well, yeah, the mindset was someone's gonna fucking pay for this. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny when you talk about well, it's not funny when you talk about the people impersonating cops and shit right away, but I, it sounds like they had stuff to steal. In my town, um, a couple of years ago, we had a flood where the whole town basically became an island. There were some dams that broke and um, a lot of people lost their houses and it, 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 it completely like made an island out of our town. We couldn't get out of it. And um, all these people were making these dramatic Facebook posts talking about how we've pulled together and, you know, we're doing so well and, and there's no looting. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I knew, I knew the cops at the time. I'm like, there was people going in, like in a flood, breaking into houses, like wading through water. And the cops had to be like, Hey, what are you doing? You know? Cause there's all these guys trying to break into a, like, obviously trying to break into a house in a flood zone. So it's like criminals are shitheads and they'll stop at nothing to screw somebody over, you know? Um, but, but yeah, so what, I guess, yeah, what exactly were, were the 
police impersonators and the fire impersonators were they just trying to steal stuff or what yeah they'd sneak in like they would they what they would do is they would sneak in and like they had little like you could walk into one of those like they had a church set up there was a bunch of different places where you could they, they were so nice to us i mean you get a massage you know i mean they, they, it, it, after a while there was hot food and stuff and there was just cases of soda and food and snacks and yeah. whatever you could think of. And, and they would steal shit. Or the, um, yeah. I remember people, FEMA, they donated these um, golf carts and motorized scooters and stuff. And then they started vanishing. They caught some of them. And then you had people that were raising money for bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there was a ton of that, like collecting money for things that's so ridiculous why and it's like why are you still why are you stealing food like you could just you could shop with that at any time you don't need a, a world tragic event to, to steal cases of supplies like that so um could you could you uh, i'm trying to think about how i want to add the next one I, let's go to giuliani so yeah what did you think about the giuliani's leadership uh, when, when this happened what, what were your thoughts on that how he responded I think he did a great job. I, I don't think anybody could have done any better. Uh, I, I think I was telling you earlier, Giuliani pulled New York. I mean, yeah. before 9-11, New York was the Wild West. Rudy came in with his guys and basically cleaned things up. And then the press, he was a lame duck mayor. He was in his second term and it turned on him. They were into his yeah. divorce. They were into his prostate cancer treatment. I mean, they were just beat. The guy couldn't catch a break. They were just beating up on him about it. Anything he did was wrong. 9-11 came around, everybody, you know, the reporters and everything were cowering. Everybody was nervous. And he went in there, he was like a general. He went in there and straightened things out. And, you know, he made himself the front man from it. He didn't hide from it. Yeah. He, you know, he gave people reason to come out. You know, people weren't coming out of their houses in the other outer boroughs. They were afraid what's going to happen next. And he was a calming influence. He was a strong influence. I, I think Rudy did a great job with 9-11. Yeah, that's good to hear. I, I read part of his book, uh, Leadership, and, and it seemed like from reading that, that he seemed like he handled that pretty well. And I, I think even a lot of the people that criticize him will, will if they're being fair, will say he did good. But uh, yeah, I, I always want to double check that with people that were actually there because it's like, uh, you know, Cuomo re wrote a leadership book after uh, COVID and it's kind of come out that, uh, you know, he wasn't doing as hot as, as he thought. So I, I, I like to ask anybody that was there, you know, what, how they thought the mayor um you know responded and not just because of giuliani but just because he was the mayor at the time you know so could you tell the story of how you knew that uh how you knew um that the that things were back to normal when you were in the bronx yeah um so i was telling you earlier so we would drive down there like this is weeks after or days after we would drive down there in caravans we had vans so we would jump in these vans and drive down to ground zero in the morning. We're doing like 12 hour shifts. So we get down there at six, seven in the morning and we leave six, seven at night. And we're coming up the West side highway and they call it the West side highway, but it's just the three lane street. And yeah. people were out there waving flags at us and cheering us on. And like, you know, it was really nice. Like, you know, egging us on. Thank you. Thank you. With signs and stuff. And, we get up to the, we, we drive over the bridge. We get into the Bronx and we get cut off by a gypsy cab. And the gypsy cab driver didn't know we were the police because we're a fan. And he's telling us to go fuck us. <laughs> and I says, "Look at this. We're in the Bronx and we're scumbags like overnight." Yeah. But I, I got I got another funny story. So I think yeah. a day or two after nine eleven, they had us going up on rooftops just to see if there's debris up there or body parts up there. So I'll never forget. I was on Murray Street. A small yeah. street in lower manhattan and i'm there with a guy who's a little reactionary it was the funniest thing in the world he and i go up on the roof and there's a piece of a landing gear up on the roof wow. Wow. some kind of it was part of the plane it looked like something for the like the, the hydraulics of the landing gear so i go oh shit and he goes holy shit you better start writing this down in your memo book and i go why i says we'll tell them it's up here he goes we could be going to trial for this I said, trial for what? I says, whoever did this is going to get pounded into, into dust. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, he, thought, he thought of it like down the road, we we're going to go to court on this and be, you know, expert witnesses that we found the fuselage of a plane or landing gear on a plane on a roof over or something. Fucking snap yourself back into reality. <laughs> yeah. No, ki <laughs> no, no kidding. They can't. They couldn't possibly interview everybody who's. I could write a book about that guy, but <laughs> that, I, I won't. 
that's really funny um man that, that that's wild so how so okay you started i think working like insurance fraud cases afterwards so what was the timeline of so so 9-11 happens you're at ground zero how long were you working ground zero how long were you there before you started kind of transitioning back to the office and maybe doing like insurance fraud cases how long was that time period um, we were down there for 9-11, my office, this, uh, the Bronx office, the auto crime division, we were down there for like the first 10 days. Then they pulled us out and then we would go like uh, maybe once a month. But what they okay. really did with us was the debris had to go somewhere and they were bringing, there's a dump out in Queens. It's, it's tremendous place. It's called the Fresh Kills Dump. It, they had closed it. They opened it up. And they started bringing dump trucks of debris out there and sifting through it there. And all the cars went out there. So they, my team, our office was out at the, we were going out to Staten Island, which you can't get any further from the Bronx to Staten Island. It's, it's like 50 miles and it's not in straight and narrow. There's bridges and twists and turns. It takes like two hours to get there. But we were going there a couple of times a week and with, with the recovered vehicles that were crushed they were getting pulled out of the debris. We were opening them up with the jaws of life to make sure that there wasn't anybody in there. And also you had people, they were afraid, and I'm sure it happened, people were filing insurance claims. So they yeah. wanted to account for all the cars that were down there. So we were down at the dump. We were going down there quite regularly, which that place is like the surface of the moon. I mean, you've got these tremendous dump trucks I had never seen before, like earth movers. Yeah. And the place looks like the moon. And they had us in these Tyvek suits, and I, I'm sure it's like a cancer ground down there. But we were going down there quite a bit and had these little trailers for us set up. And then um, we were doing the auto aspect of it, but like other cops they were bringing in, they just had a conveyor belt of debris going by, and they were sifting through it for driver's licenses and body parts or you know personal items that they could get back to loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and and so then when you were doing the insurance fraud, I, it kind of, it kind of blows my mind. But I also know how humans are that people were trying to set up, you know, phony insurance claims saying that their cars were damaged. Is that what it was? Like people said that their cars were damaged when they weren't stuff like that. Or gone. Yeah. Basically saying gone. the car, you know, I, I parked down there and I, I guess it uh, was destroyed. Dude. I didn't catch a case like that. I'm sure our Queens office did. So I know that, that you've said that you felt like kind of being a cop had helped you recover from that. Um, you know, you maybe you didn't have as much, I don't know if you call it post-traumatic stress or it, it just felt like maybe you were able to bounce back a little bit faster. And that's because, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons as, as a cop, I mean, if you're getting in shootouts, stuff like that, you're, you're seeing, but the firefighters, you know, they see, you know, a lot of bodies too. Do you think that part of what helped you kind of recover was that, you know, eventually you were able to go back to another case. You were able to go back to, you know, auto crime at that point, or there was always another case for you to, to do outside of 9-11, whereas firefighters, you know, I think they kind of had that in their face for a very long time and they had to live in it and they lost, you know, a lot of, a lot of firefighters as well. Do you think that maybe it had helped you kind of recover? Well, I've been accused by loved ones that I worry about the wrong things. Um, yeah. I didn't... Honestly, I mean, I didn't, I, I did, I'm wired differently. I mean, by that part of my career, again, I had seen so many bad things. Yeah. It, it didn't freak me out. I don't think I'm traumatized from it. I, I've never had a nightmare about it. Uh, last night, I, I usually don't remember my dreams. You know what I dreamed about last night? I'm in sitting at Catholic high school and there's one test I got to take to pass. So I won't go to summer school. And it's like, <laughs> in Russian and yeah. there's not even a kid I can sit next to that I can copy his answers like the answer keys were all different <laughs> with the kids sitting next to me I'm like what the fuck like I'm gonna go to summer <laughs> school again because I went to Catholic high school I wound up going to summer school because I was just having too much fun yeah but yeah I've been often I've been accused of worrying about the wrong things but that I didn't have it I mean they weren't they brought us down and, and had us talk to counselors and stuff and it's, I'm it, sure it bothered me, but it, it didn't freak me out. I didn't, you know, I didn't have PTSD from it or I guess I'm wired differently. Yeah. Well, you know, well, um, that stuff affects everybody differently. And I think, um, 
like I've talked to a friend of mine who was one of the first cops in the Von Mar shooting in Omaha. I don't, have you ever heard of that? The Von no. Mar shooting? Uh, basically, this kid went into to Von, like a Von Mar, like in our mall. And um, it was just a shopping center and he shot a bunch of people. And um, oh, one of, yeah, one of my fr- this was a long time ago, too. But a friend of mine was uh, with the first cops that, that went in there. And um, his story is kind of crazy because he said they get this call and they get there and the SWAT team's outside putting their vests on. And they're like, well, we're waiting to go in. And they said, screw that. We're going in. So he said they run in through the, the food court and all these people are eating just like normal. And so they kind of run in with their guns and they stop and they're like, you guys got to go. And so then after that, he said the rest of the mall was there was nobody. All the shops were shut down and locked down. So you know, you're close. Yeah. And he, he said he, he goes into into the store um, and he said it was just quiet, but there was Christmas music playing. And he's like, I'll never forget yeah. that Christmas music playing. And he's like, we went up and then you saw, you know, he's like, once we got in there, you're seeing all these bodies. And then kind of people start eventually piling out of like clothing racks and all these hiding spots. And, but he had said, he's like, it bothered some of the guys I was with. It didn't really bother me. He's like, you know, I've, I've always had a little bit of morbid curiosity and I was on a volunteer fire department and I joined it when I was 17 and like my best friend and I, he's still a firefighter, but you know, as kids, we always had morbid curiosity too. When we were at a call, if there's an accident or something, they tried to kind of keep us away when we were younger until they knew that we could handle right. it. Handle it. You know, we were always the kind of kids that were, you know, you were kind of like looking cause you wanted to see the body. And I think, I think that you have to have a little bit of that in order to do anything with first responding. Cause if you can't handle blood, you need to find something else to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, freeze. So, if you yeah, freeze, so, things uh, are going bad. Yeah. Uh, of course. But what about the other guys you work with? Did anybody ever tell you like, Hey, you know, I'm really rattled by that. Did anybody retire? No, early? nobody. No, 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 no. Nobody I worked with. Nobody in my office, everybody in my office had handled fine. There were people, not that I worked with, but yeah. other people that, that didn't handle it well. And, you know, as a result, I, I don't know what happened to them, but I know that they, I know they were in therapy. They were, they were talking to somebody. Yeah, they, I was just talking to a guy in the army this past week um, at my church. And, and he's like, he's like, dude, there's, there's deep. He's like, the Taliban goes deep. There's sleeper cells in America. They're, they're everywhere, man. They're, they're going deep and they're recruiting, you know, slowly. And I, it's something that I've studied a little bit. I think that, uh, I don't, I think they have zero plans to leave us alone. I don't believe for a second, you know, that, that our time over there was, was wasted. I think maybe there's some things we could have done differently and efficiently, and we'll see what happens in the future. But I, I don't think for a second that this, this is over, you know, um, we'll see no. if, if there's more attacks in America, Ho- hopefully not. Um, but, uh, there's a lot that can go. We have a lot of enemies right now. Um, whether it's, whether it's Taliban, China, um, the, the cartels, I think that's going to be a threat, you know, sooner than later. Um, there's a lot kind of going on right now. And so, um, I think people should stay on guard and think about how they can best protect their family and have situational awareness. And that's kind of, I don't plan on talking about this with probably anybody else I, I interview over the course of, you know, covering, you know, 9-11's 20 year anniversary. But um, what does kind of piss me off about the conspiracy theories is that it, it, it takes it, people are like, oh, if it was an inside job, I don't have to worry. No, it, I don't think it was an inside job at all. And I think no. that, that we do need to be worried about foreign threats. Does that ever piss you off here? In yeah. The conspiracy theory? Oh, my thing? cousin, my cousin, one time she was in college and uh, she started with that. And I says, were you down there? She goes, well, no. no, but you got to think outside the box. And my professor, I go, I says, I, I said, no, I says, yeah, not an inside job. I says, I was down there. There was all the jokes about, you know, uh, people were saying, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. And it's like, well, think about it for a second. Uh, it, it may not be able to melt it completely, but it can, uh, it can weaken uh, it. Dam- yes, weaken it. The in- bend it, damage the integrity. The other thing that that people say, like, well, jet should tip a, a tower over, and it's like we don't have any any models to base this off of with physics. Yes, planes have crashed into other things. The, the great one is when people bring up the empire that there was an advertisement against the twin towers back in the day, saying that planes would fly into it, and people use that as some kind of weird foreshadowing. Well, dummies, 
if you would research it at all, you would know that there was a lot of people who were against the tw towers being built. They thought it was too invasive. Um, they thought that planes were going to fly into it in, on accident, which is what happened in, during World War II, you know, in the Empire State Building. It was not some weird global <laughs> foreshadowing no. Illuminati thing that people want to <laughs> yeah. say it was. And uh, I, my understanding, and I've been trying to, there's a book called uh, Fall and Rise, I believe. And they talk about the infrastructure of it because, and I need to, I need to, I, did, I rented the book from the library. I need to grab it again to study it because they, they kind of go into detail about how the way it was built is kind of why it fell the way it did, why it actually fell, because nobody thought it was going to fall. You know, people thought it was just going to kind of stay there, I think, um, like the firefighters and stuff who were going up. I don't think anybody anticipated it no. collapsing. Mm -hmm. But uh, my understanding is, is like some laws were kind of grandfathered in that shouldn't have been. And that's kind of why things happen uh, the way that they did. Um, which is why when, when, if you really study 9-11, and I'm not talking about going on YouTube and watching conspiracy videos, but actually reading books and talking sure. to people like yourself and, and talking and, and studying from people who were there and actually know something about it, um, it, it it's heartbreaking because you're just thinking like, this can't happen. Like there's so many minor adjustments along the way that had they been made, whether it was the building of it, or like you had said, um, you know, some of our federal agencies, like some of our, our uh, law enforcement departments following up on certain things and the federal agencies as well. I mean, I think those guys were training in Florida when they were flying those planes like somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. There was a they had thought this out. I mean, th their their full time job was how to destroy America. That's what they woke up every day thinking about. They right. didn't go. They didn't go work at uh, McDonald's and Kinko's and then, you know, for a couple hours before they went to bed, you know, pondered how to take this country down. They were funded too. That's all they did. Right. And so I don't want to even, I don't, the only reason I'm talking about it with you is because I think you're kind of cool enough about it that, you know, uh, you, you, you know, um, you know, you're more approachable with it, but I'm not going to bring this up to a firefighter or a victim of it. You know, it's just a stupid thing to talk about, but I, I was kind of curious about what your thoughts were whenever you encounter uh, those kind of. I think there were multiple. I, I think there were. No, I mean, I, when we pulled down there, this is I just remember. So when we pulled down there, there, there one of the buildings were was on fire because it was like one World Trade, five World Trade. One of the buildings was on fire. It looked like like Universal Studios, something like you could feel the fucking heat. We were in a bus and you just. I don't know, 20 story building, whatever it was, there was just flames coming out of every window. Yeah. And I love when people go, Oh, well that wouldn't have fallen down. I'm like the fucking building was on fire. Like I saw it, you know, yeah. like, and we got the fuck away from it and we pulled a couple of blocks away. And then I don't know, a half hour later or something, you could hear it come down. Yeah. It wasn't an explosion. It just imploded because of the weight and everything else. I mean, yeah. Did you, did you see it go down or did you just hear heard it? it? heard it jeez yeah that's interesting you say that with the heat too it's like if people have ever been to if, if they've never been to like a real fire uh, if you go to like a concert and when they shoot the flames out or whatever on the I mean, you can feel it. yeah you can feel that heat press against your face so if you're feeling that if that if that fire is 20 stories up and you're how, how far away were you you said when you felt it uh, we were like in the middle of the street, but you know, like those buildings it was you just it wasn't like right on the street there was like a courtyard. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was a distance, but you could feel the heat. I mean, it was that intense. And I mean, we were in a bus with the windows down. Um, I don't know. Like there was like a courtyard, but I mean, that thing was rocking and rolling, man. I mean, when, when I read about like the firefighter Oriel Palmer, who like made it all the way up to the actual, like where the, where the plane had hit, it, it's just like so mind blowing. Like that's why like that guy to me is, is a true hero and a badass Cause it's like, I don't know how he did it. I mean, I, I have no idea how he got all the way to the top and, and stuff, but, um, that's what a nine 11. Yeah. On nine 11, he, he, he was, he, uh, didn't survive. he did not survive. No, but yeah, I think he, he got all the way to the top, like where the plane had actually hit. I believe. Have you ever, do you know who he is? Have you ever heard of him? No, no, this is news to me. That's, that's why I asked. Yeah. Or Oreo Palmer. Um, I think his radio was going out, but he was like, uh, I forget exactly what he was. Um, but, I would love to talk to anybody from his family because he's just, uh, when, when you study him, I, I talked to Jerry Sanford about him cause he kind of knew him, but like this guy basically 
he I don't know if he was solo or if he was with his team, but I think he was solo for a lot of it. His radio was going out and he was making it. He was trying to clear it and see how far they could go up. So he got all the way up to like where the towers or where the plane had hit the towers. And he was radioing in like, all right, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm at. He was trying to clear the way. And again, I don't think he had any idea that the, that the towers were going to collapse. That's why he went up there solo because his plan was figuring out kind of like how far they could go up and, and where they needed to help. So he was like kind of radioing instructions on the way that takes balls in and of itself. Even if you don't think that the tower is going to collapse, it's still intense to think like that guy had no guarantee. He was going to be able to get back down when he no. did that. So those are the stories that, that when people think about nine 11, think about that stuff. Don't think about some bullshit that meme that your cousin shared on YouTube. Oh, I know. <laughs> you, hey, you know? People... But yeah, but man, that that's a, you've got a heck of a, of a, of a perspective and, and um, interesting stories from the police side. Um, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I like talking to you. So, you know, what I'm going to do is uh, uh, once I, I'm going to finish all your books and then I want to have you back on again. Sure. And, uh, we'll talk about your books and then we'll we'll, we'll uh, maybe have a lighter conversation, tell some funny <laughs> stories and just talk about policing and we'll solve all the world's problems together while we talk. How about that? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me today, Vic. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Vic, again, thank you for coming on the show. It really meant a lot. Um, again, he was the kind of guy that I really did just hit it off with right away. Um, we got the joke in before and after the, the show and, and, uh, he's a great guy and I really look forward to having him back on. Uh, so again, you can find him on Facebook under author Vic Ferrari, and then you can find all of his books, all of these bad boys. You can get these on Amazon as well. Again, he's the author of Dickheads and Dubakery, Grand Theft Auto, NYPD Lawn Disorder, the NYPD's Flying Circus, and NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Uh, so please, please check out his books. Again, if you like the podcast, if you like the idea of what we've been doing, um, please help us out. And you can do that uh, in, in some very simple ways. Number one, if you're watching us on YouTube, please leave a nice comment and uh, like the video. Uh, as well as subscribing to us. Uh, that's that's huge. Uh, subscribe to us on all platforms. Give us a like on Facebook at Book Brilliant. Um, on Twitter, we're B Book Brilliant. We're even on TikTok at B Book Brilliant as well. And then on Instagram, we are just Book Brilliant. Um, so if you could give us a like and a follow on those pages, that significantly helps us out. Um, on our website at bookbrilliant.com, um, I have the, the show notes for this. I've got links. Any book that we mentioned gets thrown in there, um, and that way you can find the book easily and order it if you would like. Again, thank you, everybody, for listening, and um, my heart goes out to the, the families and the victims and everybody who was uh, directly impacted um, from 9-11. It's crazy that it was 20 years ago, um, and uh, man, is the world different since then. Um, so I hope that these episodes give people some perspective on that. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day.